let's take our Bibles and we're going to briefly look at three passages this morning. I'll try to go quickly. Let's start in John chapter 6. And I'm going to talk this morning about a characteristic of Jesus' life that uh, we usually focus on at Easter time when we think about all the suffering that he went through and and the pain that he endured on the cross. Um, The sacrifice that that Jesus made was unthinkable. We We can't put our minds around not just the physical standpoint of what he endured, but also the spiritual standpoint of what he endured with, with the, the every sin that billions and billions and billions of people has ever committed uh, being put on him. He felt all the guilt of sin. Uh, he felt all the weight of, of evil, the shame of evil, uh, the arrogance and the, and the rebellion and the disobedience that's underlying every single sin. He felt the agony of separation from the Father. That's a, that's a point of theology that we will never understand until we get to heaven, uh, what that was. But, but he felt that separation. He felt the accusation of the enemy uh, who is behind that sin. And he endured uh, unbearable pain, unbearable suffering that, that we can't um, comprehend, and that spiritual torment. And just as he endured all of that, um, on the opposite side, he also uh, had the moment of complete victory, complete uh, glory in his uh, overcoming of sin and death and hell and the devil, his total defeat, his total annihilation of those, and his complete spiritual triumph. So there were the, the two extremes that, that he felt. But we don't uh, often talk about uh, the daily sacrifice that he went through. And I, I know I've never preached on this. I've never really even thought about it at length. But there's a practical everyday aspect to what Jesus uh, went through during his time on earth. And that was the daily sacrifices. You know, we, we have moments of sacrifice in our life, things that we do that are, that are uh, very uh, kind and very gracious where, where there are times where we have to give of ourselves more than we want to, but that's not really the struggle. In the moments like Sam driving up in the middle of the night to St. Luke's in the snow, I'm sure he didn't think twice about that, even though he was tired and he had to find the Conteros to help with his kids and he was stressed out. He didn't think twice about the sacrifice of driving up in the middle of the night. Of course that's what he was going to do. Those aren't, those aren't things we question. The things that are challenges us are the, the daily sacrifices that we have to make to each other. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. So we not only need to think about what he did, but about why he did it and what that calls us to. Remember, this is a study a series about the motivations of Jesus. What, what caused him to become Emmanuel, God in flesh? What caused him to come down. This is not just some little cozy, nice story we tell the kids and the grandkids about Jesus in the manger and the sheep and the shepherds and the wise men. And, and it, it, this is not just some thing that we've created to, to give meaning to Christmas. This is an actual historical event that changes lives. And we need to treat it in that way. And then as we think about that and what he endured and what he went through to save us, how does that change who we are. Now, the, the problem we have when we talk about sacrifice is that um, really there is an inherent uh, crisis within us 
And that is that there is a constant tendency uh, within our lives to do just about anything we can to avoid sacrifice. And if we're going to be really honest and we're going to re, uh, be uh, straight with the Lord this morning, there are many things we do to avoid giving. There are many things we do to avoid sacrificing to somebody else. In fact, it's ironic. Sometimes we'll make a sacrifice in order to avoid a sacrifice. And we go to those lengths because really, honestly, we're a little bit reticent to let go of even the smallest portion of ourselves or the smallest portion of a possession in order to sacrifice to somebody else. And you say, well, come on, that's a little harsh on this really, really frigid morning. Uh, but, but let me give you an example of that. Think about the last argument you had with your spouse or the last argument you had uh, with a close friend or, or the last discussion you had with a child who was really, really stubborn. My guess would be, and I'd almost guarantee this, that, that the source of the argument was something very minor. It was about an opinion or something that you wanted to hold on to. And, and maybe even in that argument, you knew you were wrong. You ever had that time in an argument where you go, oh, snap, I'm wrong. But I'm not going to let the other person know that I'm wrong. I'm going to dig in even farther. I'm going to entrench myself even more and hope that they don't notice or hope that they'll admit that they were wrong or that the issue will just fade away. I've had arguments with my wife and my kids over the years that that are just ridiculous. I mean, about the dumbest things. I was trying to think last night of an argument we had last week, and, and at kind of the crisis point, we're all kind of tense and standing around. I said, can you believe we're having an argument about this? And it was so, so minuscule, so minor in the grand scheme of things that I can't even remember it a week later. But that's what we do. And, and when we have those, our pride gets stoked up, and we want control, and we want advantage, we don't want the other person to gain the upper hand. We're not going to tell them we're wrong, and we're certainly not going to say, I'm sorry. So we kind of fight and argue because we're not willing to sacrifice. Give of ourselves without, without any expectation of return, without getting back, just because we want to show love? No, we're not going to do that. Not usually. We're, we're, we're not going to give something of ourselves because we can be selfish. This is why 50% of marriages end in divorce. This is why the selective abortion rates are so high. It's why there's conflict and division in every aspect of society. Because at the end of the day, it is innate in us that we want to love ourselves the most. And that's why Jesus said the two greatest commandments, what are they? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he say that's the two greatest things? Because those are the ultimate proof that we're actually saved. They validate that we have yielded ourselves to Christ and that the Spirit of God is in control. And when we love the Lord with all our heart and we love other people as much as we love ourselves, that then starts to completely dictate our thoughts and it, and it changes our actions and it influences our attitude and we begin to have different relationships and a different witness because it's not about us and not about satisfying ourselves. It's about pleasing the Lord. That's why it says in 1 John, if you say you love your brother, I love the Lord and hate your brother, you're a liar. You literally can't love the Lord because it's a contradiction of what he's called you to do. Now, Jesus didn't live that way. Jesus came as Emmanuel. He came as 
God in flesh. And the whole pattern of his life, the whole purpose of his life was to be a sacrifice. Now, obviously, the one that's most clear to us is the fact that he went to the cross, the fact that he was our substitutionary sacrifice. And he says in John 15, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Then he proved that, but he didn't do it while we were friends of God. He did it while we were enemies of God. The man's in complete and total rebellion. Our default position is outright rebellion against God. The Bible uses the word enmity. It's a word we don't use in every language, and the word means hate, hostility, and disgust. So our position when we're in sin is not just, well, I've got a little, you know, a couple little sins, and I'm just kind of, I'm struggling with the Lord right now. No, that's not it. It's not something God just needs to put a bandage on. When we're in sin, we're in hatred, hostility, and disgust with God. And Jesus looked at us while we were sinners, while we were in that position of hostility, and he said, I'm coming down, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to sacrifice myself for you so you can be released from that. That's why John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the next world says, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came so that the world through him might be saved. Now, taking on that responsibility required not only a position of humble sacrifice, and we'll talk about that Saturday afternoon at Christmas Eve, but, but it required a determination that compelled Jesus not to waver in his purpose. You know, as I was studying this week, it, it hit me that we never really talk about the toughness of Jesus. We never talk about the endurance of Jesus. How is Jesus usually portrayed in art, right? He's, he's kind of soft, and he's kind of doe-eyed, and he's kind of just, just scraggly. He's kind of thin with a scraggly beard, and he's kind of holding up one. Have you ever seen this pose? You know, kind of holding up one finger. I don't know what that even means. He's just like, and he's looking off, and he's kind of soft and somber and, and just kind of, almost depressed. How many have seen that image of Jesus or not, right? If you, if you do a Google search on Jesus, that's what comes up. You never see Jesus as rugged and tough. That image that was created by artists, it's, it's really wrong. It's really a disservice. The Almighty didn't suddenly become wimpy when he took on flesh. He's Almighty God, and we need to form a new image of Jesus in our minds this morning, that he was strong and committed and unrelenting and powerful and focused. And when he took on the Pharisees, he wasn't like, well, you guys are kind of bad. It was, you're a den of snakes. You're whitewashed sepulchre. And when he went to the cross, he wasn't, he wasn't, even though he had been beaten mercilessly and he didn't look like, the Bible says, a man anymore, he wasn't some kind of limp, weak, defeated guy with his wine closet. Uh, that, that wasn't Jesus. He was on the cross and he said, God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then when it, the moment came when salvation was going to come, he declared, it is finished. It wasn't, it is finished. Now I'm kind of being a little, a little flippant here this morning because I think we've got this image of Jesus that he was just so soft, and he wasn't. 
He was powerful and holy and he cared about people and he was righteous and he ministered to people and he rebuked sin and he encouraged the disciples and trained them and walked day after day after day after day ministering to people. And we need to get that picture. Forget the Renaissance artists, what they showed us. Jesus was bold and unrelenting and focused and faithful to his calling. But to do that, here's our first thought this morning. His calling was to sacrifice his will. Look at John chapter 6. I hope you're there. Look at just one verse, verse 38. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When he was here, listen now, Jesus sacrificed his will, but not his deity. His miracles prove that. He was God in flesh. He was fully God and fully human. And he did not sacrifice his deity. He didn't become less than God in his time on earth. But he did come to do the will of the Father. Now, how do we understand that? We don't. It's inscrutable. I, I went to seminary. I studied all the passages. I've been in ministry 30 years. I've talked to theologians. I've talked to other people. I've read articles. And I'm telling you, not one person can explain what that means. How does God become God who yields to the will of God? I don't understand it. And I won't until I get to heaven. Our minds can't wrap around that. It's too much for us. But we do know that there's one God, and he's in three persons, and somehow that Jesus was able to come to earth as fully God in flesh. But listen, don't get distracted by the mystery of that because that's not the point. The point is what he's saying here. He's saying, my will as God in flesh, as the one who's the suffering servant, who's come here to, to redeem mankind, while I'm here on earth, I'm not in competition with heaven. My will is perfectly aligned with the Father. I don't have separate interests. My only purpose, my only desire is to fulfill what I came to do, which is to seek and to save that which is lost, which is everybody. In Philippians 2, it says that he emptied himself and took on the form of the bondservant. At any point, he could have exerted his power and his authority as God and deal with anybody that he came across with full rights of God. But somehow, and again, we don't understand this, he laid aside his rights and he acted as the suffering servant. Now think about the burden of that, especially as a child. We don't have a lot of information about Jesus' childhood, so it's kind of easy to just ignore it. But I want you to really think about what it would have been like to grow up knowing that you're God in flesh. What would it like to be five and seven and ten, knowing what you came to do, knowing what it would cost you, and you were perfect, not like my kids are so perfect, not, not like that. He was literally perfect. Think about the resentment from his peers, because Jesus never got in trouble. Think about the resentment from the other parents whose kids were getting in trouble. And good old little Jesus, he never is a problem. I mean, really, think, of, think about the, the, the weight that was on him. And then not only all of that and dealing with that 
and the resentment of brothers and sisters and friends and peers. But, but then always in his mind is that the only reason he's there is to go to the cross. So when he's in the temple at 12 and Mary and Joseph can't find him and they come running and, and he's been disappeared for a couple of days and they get back to Jerusalem and he's in the temple and they say, what are you doing? Why are you in the temple teaching them? And he says, I'm here because I'm here to do my father's good. From the moment that he was coherent as a child, he understood my whole reason for being here is to go to the cross. Imagine that the weight of that, that he came knowing he was going to bear just my sin. That he was just going to take the sin that Paul Rhodes has committed, the tens of thousands of sins, and, and that he couldn't live a day normally because the end result of his life was going to be that he had to go to the cross and carry my sin. There wasn't a normal day. There wasn't a day off. There wasn't a, there wasn't a well, I just think I'll take a break for a while. It was always there. And yet he never wavered. He sacrificed himself to the Father's will. There was no other option because he didn't want another option. It was the joy that was set before him. So every aspect of his life was a sacrifice. There were no independent plans. There were no independent dreams. There was just the goal. The goal was to do the will of the Father. And he says in John 4, that's my food. That's what feeds me today. What feeds me is to do the will of the Father. Now we have to ask ourselves at that point, how fully submitted am I to the will of God? Is, is it my only option or is it one option? Are we completely surrendered to, to his calling? Is there no question about obedience? There's no option. And yes, we stumble once in a while, but, but that's an anomaly. To, to disobey is an anomaly. To doubt or fear or to be anxious, that's an anomaly because we trust the Lord. In the 70s, that was called being sold out for Christ. Is that true of you and me? You know, we say it a lot, but is our life, is your life, is my life really a living sacrifice that's pleasing to God? Because he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Your love will be unquestionable. It'll be obvious. Sacrificing won't be a burden. It'll be a privilege. And love drives that mindset. That leads us to the second thought. Turn over to Mark chapter 5. Jesus sacrificed his will to the Father. He was here to serve. And then chapter 5 of the book of Mark, we see that Jesus also sacrificed his time and his energy to serve. You know, there's an everyday practicality to Jesus seeking and saving that which is lost. He came and ministered to people starting in the point of need. Now, the need of every single person that we're going to come across this week, whether it's a friend, family member, co-worker, stranger, whoever it is, person in the grocery store, every person's need that we will come in contact with is spiritual. People can be poor, they can be sick, they can be struggling, they can be out of work, they can be disenfranchised. Listen, those are, those are temporal needs. Those things change. 
but the ultimate need of every person. And, and imagine if we start to see people this way. Imagine if we're in the grocery store and somebody's irritating us because they're taking too long in line and they wait until all the groceries have been counted and bagged by the cashier because they couldn't do it. And then they wait to write the check, right? You run that person? All right. If we're irritated by that person, or we're struggling because the cashier doesn't make eye contact with us, or somebody's rude and cuts off us off and takes our place in the parking lot. We, we think about that in terms of earthly. But every single person has a spiritual need of food. So Jesus came seeing people in their spiritual need. And to, to minister to them, he started to deal with what they were dealing with that led to the spiritual need. See, Jesus modeled for us an important way to impact people spiritually, and, and, and that's by creating opportunities for spiritual dialogue. The woman at the well is a perfect example of this. Jesus comes up to the well, and the woman's there, and he asks her for something to drink, and they kind of have some dialogue, and then he talks to her about living water, which, of course, she wanted because she was thinking, I don't want to have to come back to the well every day and fill up the jug, but he's talking about something different, and, and then that leads into a conversation about her personal life, and then he starts to identify her unhappiness and her instability, and then that leads her to truth, and that leads her to faith. This started with, can I have something to drink? What I've learned from people like my father or Bill Stratton or other people that are so effective at evangelism is just starting to ask the question, we were sitting in the hospital with Bill and just kind of interacting. It was so good to see him talking. And, and he's asking every nurse that walks in, where do you go to church? You should come to our church. I'm like, dude, this guy, this guy is, is awesome. He's just died a couple days ago. And now he's saying to the nurse, where do you go to church? You should come to our church. We have a great church. It's down on Four Mile Road. Do you live nearby here? You should come to our church. How, where does your, where's your family go to church? And most people say, I don't go to church. Well, you should come to our church. Creating opportunities, asking questions. You know, you can get anybody to talk about themselves if you just ask them questions. Our problem is we sit there and we wait for somebody else to ask us questions. And then you have those awkward moments of silence because everybody wants to talk about themselves. You want to be a great evangelist? I learned this from my dad. You start asking people questions. How are you? What are you doing? What's your family like? Where do you go to church? Have you worked here long? People want to talk. Jesus came and he sacrificed his time and his energy because he took an interest. One thing Jesus modeled so well for us is a heart for people. And listen, caring for people and taking an interest in them takes time and energy we don't always feel like we have and we don't always want to give. But look at this passage in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Let me get on the right page. That would be helpful. Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. A large crowd gathered around him, so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Now, if you go back uh, 20, 30 verses, you see that Jesus has taught extensively to a very large crowd. He calmed the sea after the disciples and him were caught in a huge storm. And then he cast the demon 
out of a possessed man. Now this synagogue official comes up with a major crisis because his daughter's about to die, and the crowds are pressing in, and as he's going to his house, the next 20 verses, he's going to get interrupted by a woman with a hemorrhage, and he's going to, uh, to um, be mo- uh, go back, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, he's going to be interrupted by the woman with the hemorrhage, he's going to go and heal the girl and raise her from the dead, and then he's going to go to Nazareth, his hometown, but he's going to have no success there because the people are going to mock him and ridicule him. Just in the span of about 50 verses, that was his life. He's pressed physically, exhausted to the point we can't understand. He's pressed emotionally, but the spiritual toll was unreal. But he says in Matthew 20, I didn't come to be served. Think about that, the God of all heaven. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom. In other words, his whole purpose was to give himself to others, even people who denied him and opposed him and mocked him and put him to death. But it didn't stop him. He became God in flesh to give to others. Now, his example of sacrifice should inspire us to do the same. And obviously, it starts with, number one, our relationship to him, our our sacrifice and submission to him. Then it goes to our families. When you think about your relationship with your spouse, when you think about your relationship with your kids or your mom and dad or your brothers and sisters, would you say that the one word that would describe you or that they would use to describe you would be sacrifice? When you serve your spouse, do you sacrifice time to be with them? Do you sacrifice time to be with your kids, not not just living selfishly, but making them a priority and serving them, and yielding to them, not out of obligation, but because you love them. When you think about your friends, ministering to them, praying for them, serving them to show the love of Christ, not because I made you feel guilty, but because you really care about them. And it continues into the body, using our gifts to serve and minister to each other, especially our children, so that they'll learn about Christ and be raised, and and that will reinforce what you're teaching so well as parents and as grandparents to love the Lord and know about the Lord and to talk about the Lord. You know, there really should never, ever be a deficiency of people to serve in this church. Even though we're a smaller church, we should have people on a waiting list because there are too many people and not enough slots. We have a need right now. We, I didn't emphasize it earlier. We have a need right now for about three people to serve in nursery once a month. I mean, it's, we're, we're getting to the point where it's hard because if somebody's sick or somebody drops out or the weather's bad like it is today, that, that people don't come. We need to have people that are ready on a waiting list that we can just say, all right, you're next up. Now, many of you, those of you that are here today, many of you serve, and I'm so grateful for that, and I want to thank you publicly for your faithfulness and your sacrifice and your service. But some of us still just aren't doing anything. And I'm not saying that because there's a need. I'm saying that because our calling is to sacrifice our time and energy to serve each other. If you're struggling with your spouse, I will say to you, the first place you need to look is, am I being sacrificial? Not what are they doing and why don't they do it? And Paul, you don't know. They don't ever sacrifice. Listen, the Bible doesn't say sacrifice only when they sacrifice. 
it says, yield yourselves to one another as unto the Lord. We need to be sacrificial in serving each other and serving the body of Christ. Much of the reason, let me finish with this, that we don't do that is because of sacrifice number three. So turn over to Luke 9 for a moment. Luke chapter 9. I want to start in verse 57. I'll start reading as you turn. Thanks for bringing your Bibles. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Then another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand in the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. See, the, the final principle that we need to understand this morning is Jesus sacrificed his comfort. Prior to this, in the context, the disciples had just been arguing about which of them was the greatest in heaven. And Jesus takes that opportunity to teach them that being a disciple means being humble. And then several people come up to Jesus and they say they want to follow him, but Really, I think the bottom line here is that they sense that he's going to set up the kingdom and they want to be on the ground floor. Well, if he's going to become powerful and he's going to rule Israel, then I want to be part of that. And I want to say I got in when it first started so that when time comes for people to gain status and power and authority and some financial reward, I'll be right there. So, well, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. And Jesus says, well, maybe you're not. He puts the quietus on their thinking because he says, listen, this is not about gold thrones, and this is not about wealth, and this is not about power, and this is not about you attaining a place on earth. Let me tell you something. I don't even have anywhere to sleep tonight. So you want to talk to me about following me? You want, you want to tell me that you're willing to go anywhere with me? Well, let me just tell you something. I'm the son of man, and I have nowhere to lay my head tonight. Jesus and the disciples spent a lot of time in, in Galilee and Capernaum, which is at the northern end. It was a, a pretty prominent city uh, on the end of Galilee. That was where Peter lived and several of the other disciples. So when they were on the northern end of the, of the Galilee, that's probably where they hung out. They probably went to Peter's house and, and kind of crashed there. But most of the time, they either slept out in the open or, or they relied on somebody to offer them a place. This wasn't new to Jesus, if you remember the Christmas account. That's what happened when they got to Bethlehem. They had nowhere to stay. So they go to the inn. The innkeeper says, I don't have any room. It's Christmas. I mean, it's, it's Passover time. And, and they're the counting of the, the people, the census. So there's no room. I'm sorry. But I got a little stable out in the back. You can, go, you can go hang out there. Even as a baby, Jesus didn't have anywhere to lay his head. This is the complete fallacy of the prosperity movement within Christianity. Because our discipleship is not about wealth or privilege or power. Jesus himself not only disproved that, but he talked against it. He said, I'm sacrificing my comfort. I have no home. I move around. I'm constantly with the disciples 24-7 until I go off in the night to pray. 
I'm opposed, I'm threatened by powerful and influential people. I have no time for myself. But listen, it's not important because I'm not here for my comfort. I'm here to do the will of the Father and to find those that need to be saved. Now, turn it back to us. How fully are you and I willing to sacrifice our comfort to live for Christ? Over the years of ministry, I've heard people say, well, that's not my comfort zone, and, and, and you know, that gets to be a wider and wider zone all the time where it's just a little bit uncomfortable and I don't know if I could do that, Pastor. And, and, and we either just resist or we walk away. And, and, you know, here's the problem. It's not like we live in a real rugged, resilient, committed generation right now, is it? You see in the stories, people need puppies and they need to color and they need Play-Doh and they need a safe zone because they didn't get their way. Life's not going like they want. And, 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 and I'm disappointed. So I'm going to need, instead of going to my college class and writing my paper that was due on the syllabus, I'm going to need some puppies to play with. I'm going to need a safe place where I can play with Play-Doh and kind of work through my feelings. Aren't you disgusted by that? We don't have a rugged mindset. We don't have a sacrificial mindset. Listen, a few weeks ago, a missionary named Helen Rosevere died. She spoke at Wheaton College in March of 1984, and that was when the Lord confirmed my calling to ministry. And I don't have time to recap her whole story, but I'll post an article. You may have seen it on my personal site, but I'll post an article on our Harbor Rock Facebook page this afternoon. You can read about her. And if you don't have Facebook, just email me, Paul Ro or P. Rhodes at Harbor Rock Tabernacle, and I'll send it to you. But Helen Rosevere was called to missions during college. And she felt when she got called that her heart wasn't fully engaged on it. So she told a missionary gathering in northern England, she said, I'll go anywhere God wants me to, whatever the cost. And then after that meeting, she went up in the mountains and she had it out with God. And she said this, okay, God. Today I mean it. Go ahead and make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. But please, knowing myself fairly well, when I feel I can't stand anymore and cry out, stop, will you ignore my stop and remember that today I said, go ahead. God led her to the Congo to serve as a doctor. Long story short, you can read about it. While she was there, she was taken hostage. She was brutally, brutally beaten, and she was raped. And during that time, she wondered if God had failed her and why he didn't step in and prevent her suffering. But then she sensed the Lord saying to her, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. And all I ask of you is the loan of your body. Helen Rosevere came to a place, she said, where she felt an overwhelming sense of privilege. Can you imagine that word? Privilege that the Lord would ask of her something he needed, that he didn't take away her pain or the cruelty or the humiliation, but it was with him and for him and in him. It was the sharing of his suffering. And that mindset 
gave her a tremendous impact in ministry, including on me. And my guess is that when we hear that story, it makes us very uncomfortable. And we say, well, if I was hesitant to sacrifice before, now I'm really intimidated. But Paul says in Philippians 3, what's more important? Because the things of the earth are rubbish and all things should be considered loss for the, here's the word again, for the privilege of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Listen, we can cling to comfort, whatever that is, but if it's preventing us from serving the one who went to the cross with our sins, it's worthless. It's worthless. If we're going to live for Christ, we're going to have to sacrifice. And every sacrifice has a price. Whether or not we're willing to do that, whether or not we're willing to sacrifice is determined by whether or not we will pay that price. Listen, if you really want to be holy like Christ, then you're going to have to give up the things of the world. That's the price. If you really want to have a faith that is powerful and strong and you want to fully trust the Lord, then the price is you're going to have to yield control. Say, well, I really want to be a student of the word. I really want to be a person that can pray. Well, then the sacrifice is going to be time. The sacrifice is going to be prioritizing that over other interests that are currently, currently more important than that. That's the price of being disciple. The currency is our will. It's our will. I want to be more like Christ. Then what are you doing? What am I doing to be more like Christ? It doesn't happen by proxy, and it doesn't happen just by desire. There has to be a commitment there. So what's the Lord see when he looks at you and me? Does he see sacrifice and surrender as a disciple of Christ? Or does he see selfishness and safety as someone that just wants to follow without paying the cost? Remember, the rich young ruler came up and said, I want to follow you. Jesus says, that's great. Sell everything you have and follow me. And it says he went away sad because the price was too high. Will that be you and me? Is the price of following Christ too high for us? Or are we going to be committed like Christ and say, no matter what, Lord, like Helen Rosevere, no matter what, Lord, I want to follow you. Because when she entered into heaven, I guarantee you, Jesus said, well done. You were good and faithful. Let's pray together.